Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Of Poetry Podcast with the poet Leonard D. Moore. Leonard D. Moore is an internationally acclaimed poet and anthologist. His literary works have been published in more than 16 countries and translated into more than 12 languages. His poems, essays, short stories, and book reviews have appeared in more than 400 publications. His poems have appeared in more than 100 anthologies. He's taught creative writing in African-American literature. He is a U.S. Army veteran. Moore is the author of Long Rain, The Geography of Jazz, A Temple Looming, Desert Storm, A Brief History, Forever Home, The Open Eye, among other books. He's the editor of All the Songs We Sing, One Window's Light, a collection of haiku, and other books. He has collaborated with poets, visual artists, musicians, and dancers on several projects. He is the founder and executive director of the Carolina African American Writers Collective and co-founder of the Washington Street Writers Group. He also is the longtime executive chairman of the North Carolina Haiku Society. He is the first African-American president of the Haiku Society of America, serving two terms. Among his numerous awards are the North Carolina Award for Literature, Furious Flower Laureate Ring, Haiku Museum of Tokyo Award, Margaret Walker Creative Writing Award, Kave Kanem Fellowships, and a Soul Mountain Retreat Fellowship. He earned his Master of Arts in English and African American Literature from North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. He also earned his Bachelor of Arts in Liberal Studies with a minor in English, magna cum laude, from Shaw University. Hello and welcome to Of Poetry, Mr. Moore. Hello, Han. How are you? So good. So good to sit with you this Saturday morning. Um, would you like to begin by reading a poem? Okay. I'll read the first poem from The Geography of Jazz, Swinging Cool. The bassist hugs the bass, plunks it. Ting, boom, ting, boom. The drummer beats and booms. Saxophonist weaves notes oscillates, blows, and the pianist finger dances on the keys, swinging at the haven. Musicians spark the sheet music stands and angled microphones, blue backdrop, modulating that tempo. They work the tune, drumsticks knocking time, piano plucking our ears, bass man still hugging the bass, straight sets, walls thrumming, steady as the spring moon in sight, ting the indigo sky. Thank you. Um, I love the way inciting goes back to that ting boom, ting boom in the poem. Um, this is such a beautiful book and it does such incredible things with music. And I was thinking a lot about how 
our history with music goes deep into our lives, into our childhood. Um, and I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about your experience with music as a child and how it kind of grew into your life and your poetry. Wow, that's a great question. No one has asked me that one, but it's so fascinating that when I was young, like maybe about six or seven, I would dance in the living room. My great aunt, great uncle would come to the house, my parents in there, and they would tell me to dance, my great uncle, great aunt, and them and my parents. And of course, I would try to emulate James Brown. I would spin around. And, you know, they had that good music playing that I still love, the Supremes, and uh, so much music. And we listen to music all the time, and I listen to music. So music is very much a part of me, not just my poetry. I am music, so I have to infuse it into my writing. I listen to it all the time. In fact, as we do this interview right now, music is playing downstairs, mm. and it's jazz. Mm-hmm. I love jazz. Yes. Um, I think the way, I mean, I, I often like thinking about our lives as fabric and that there's a lot of different things that weave into, you know, the fabric of our lives. And I mean, the way I think playing music and turning music on is, is constantly appearing in your poetry, um, as well as like live performance and sitting in front of someone as well as musicians words. Like it's, it's all of music, right? It's not just playing it or, um, and you mentioned right before we started this podcast that you also have sung in, in choirs and, um, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like the whole life in music. Right. And it's almost like poetry is a facet of that for you. You're right. I love music. And, you know, I used to play basketball and to me, when you dribble and the movement on court, on the court, that's, that's music too. Uh, and, you know, I used to run trike and you think of your certain steps that you take, mm-hmm. uh, getting the uh, baton that's handed to you in the relay. Uh, it's, it's all music. Mm. Uh, I love it. Life is music. Walk, mm-hmm. talk, breathing, whatever we do is music. Yes. Um, I'm reading N.K. Jemison's book, her new, her new novel, The City We Became. And one of the characters, Brooklyn, was a um, like a former, like first like female DJ from Brooklyn. And um, there's a lot of the conversation about the music being part of the city, that like all the mm-hmm. sounds of the city are part of that music. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you make me think of a, a short story I used to teach, James Baldwin's Sunny Blues, uh, you know, so that fiction too, uh, music is, is dominant in that work. So I, I, I'm telling you, I just love music. Uh, and it's such a, a gift, I think, to have been given that from your parents and your family too, that, I mean, that to choose to raise a child in music or and that's, that's a, a real choice. And um, my parents were very anti-pop culture and um, they were anti a lot of music. And so we did get music at church, but um, at home, my parents would play some folk, but it was so limited. So like growing up and being an adult, like all of music being open to you and, you know, helping your children learn music is, is such a different experience now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think I'm so 
I'm so moved and interested by just how beautifully you write about music. Um, is this, and I know it's really hard. I think you do two things that are really difficult, which is you write a lot of love poems uh-huh. and you write about music. And if I was, I teach a lot of intro to creative writing classes, and I would probably tell my students, these are two of the hardest things you can do. <laughs> um, but yeah, especially writing love poems because you don't want to uh, be sentimental. So you're mm-hmm. right. It's, it's hard to do, but I think it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I love doing that. And then speaking of my parents, they both could sing. So, so yeah, music is is Mm -hmm. part of it. And then from time to time, my mother will sing in church, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, certain programs when she's talking, then she just starts singing. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. And I, in fact, I keep telling her, I get up there and sing with her sometime, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because we all sing around at the house. So yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I was teasing one of my children with, um, my dad was army. My dad served 34 years in the army and, um, he would sometimes bring back, you know, the chance, the whole, when my, when my granny was 92, <laughs> she could do pushups better than you. Uh, I was teasing my children with some of those this week and they, they just were giving me these looks like, where does that come from? <laughs> uh, yeah. That's funny. I remember singing different, uh, mm-hmm. things and training, you know, uh, and then uh, I, too, uh, you know, grew up, uh, my father in the Marine Corps and all that mm-hmm. for about 25 or 26 years. So so I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then I went in the Army and, and so did my brother. We went in the buddy system. So so certainly. Wow. Different branch than your father. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're not. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Um, I have a neighbor who lives next to me who um, is retired from the Air Force. And, um, you know, the first time I told him, like, oh, my dad was in the army, he said, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, I have an uncle who retired from the Air Force. Mm -hmm. That's funny. Lots of family members have been in the military. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Great uncles, you name it. Yeah. Well, we have, we, we share that um, and we share being in the state of North Carolina as writers. Um, and I'm, I'm just thrilled to be able to speak with someone who has spent their, you know, who's lived a lot of their life here and who's from here because uh, living in Durham, um, so, you know, I think when we first moved here, when I would meet someone who'd lived here even five years, it was almost uh-huh. a big deal. Like, oh, wow, you've been here a long time. Um, and now we've lived here about 10 years. And, um, you know, there's still such an influx of new people. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the accents in Durham are, are, you don't hear many Southern accents, um, except when my students come in from further out in North Carolina to, to Duke or, or to town. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's just really good to connect with someone who has a, a longer history um, here, even though I know you've moved in your life, you have returned here, right? Right, right. But, you know, the Carolina African-American Writers Collective has read and or performed that Festival for the Eno, Ben Bay mm. Festival, you name it. Uh, Haytai Heritage Center, you name it. I'm, I'm really glad you bring that up. I think it's just incredible. Um, the work you have done supporting younger, younger writers and supporting writers, um, period, in the state. Um, and I really, I'm really invested in, in Southern writers and, um, 
doing work locally. Like, I think that's where it really matters. Um, is, do you, is there advice that you have for poets who are at an earlier stage in their writing life that you'd like to share? I, I think the, the major thing one must do is read a lot of poetry and, and read the type of poetry you might be interested in and then later read everything mm. and then write as often as possible. But the main thing to do is read. I think that's the way one really learns how to write. And then try to meet with other writers, whether at a coffee shop, library, or somewhere. I think that community is is, is really important for writers, uh, especially budding writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have community as well as reading and venues to share your work. And also, don't be afraid to participate at open mics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I mean there's a lot of opinions out there about open mics. Um, and, um, but it really does take some courage to go read at them. It does. It does. The the first time you might break a sweat, but after that it becomes easier. It's like public speaking. The first time is nothing more than the icebreaker. And then I, I would say, you know, some people say, write about what you don't know. I say write about what you know. If you write about your experience, I think your work will be more authentic. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, that's the best advice I can give to, to anybody in poet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think every time my students write about their family or write about their parents or write about um, the place they live, there's so much more weight in what they're writing about. Absolutely. And, you know, I do believe in trying to create a sense of place in my work too. Oh, so yes. That's so important, you know, go back to your roots. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about music and the city, I was thinking about how much of North Carolina um, nature and environment really come through your poetry. And I mean, that's part two, you have a, um, a, a history, right, with the haiku and tanka and with high boon. And I think I might just read um, a little moment or two from Guy Davenport's um, introduction to your book, Long Rain, which is so beautiful. And I, as a, you know, reviewer and reviews editor myself, when you see someone writing really lovingly and beautifully about um, poetry. I mean, you just stop because it's not, it's not common. Right. Um, and he, he was such a great essayist that, you mm. know, you read his own books. Uh, he had one that came out in 96 from, uh, uh, counterpoint, the Hunter Grosses or something mm. like that. It's really good. But I also love his book, the geography of the imagination, check those essays out. I love that he has the geography of the imagination and you have the geography of jazz. Uh, <laughs> I will. I will. I mean, I think that's what's so fun about reading a new book with like, I'd never read Guy Davenport before, but you know, I read his loving attention to your work and then I want to go read his work and I'm like, who is this? I haven't heard of them. Um, so like the constellations of writers that are around. Right, the book. right. He was a MacArthur award winning writer, oh. great writer and, and, and a really good intellectual. So wow. yeah, uh, you learn something from him by reading him. 
he says of your work. Well, first of all, we were just talking about um, place. And he mentions that psychologists have rarely, if ever, looked at the weather in diagnosing illness of the soul, though poets have. And then he talks about um, how shadows lie in the yard, how light falls through the apple tree, how frost splinters a plowed field are decisive components of our euphoria or our despair. Weather has always been a correlative in drama. And then he talks about um, how Leonard Moore is a Japanese poet who lives in North Carolina or a North Carolina poet who lives in an imaginary medieval Japan. He's been a farmer, an American soldier in Germany, a school teacher. His ancestors come from Africa in chains. He seems to the world's eye to be as rep representative a husband, father, and citizen as any sociologist might point to as a statistically ordinary, well-behaved American. And the sociologist would be wrong for Leonard Moore as a poet, and all good poets are extraordinary and very good ones are unique. Um, wow, I'm honored and humble, you know, by those words. <laughs> they, they, you know, it's just a totally different um, quality to, to be read really well like that. And um, he talks about your poem, your tanka from um, Long Rain, in an instant Blue Jays switch places, the one that begins that way. And he talks about a child might ask why the Jays can be on a wire when it is warned never to touch which it is warned never to touch. In North Carolina folklore, the J is thonic. It is never seen on Fridays as it is then in the underworld with messages about us. Unlike as with the Cardinal, which I think of Tyree Day's beautiful book, Cardinal, that recently came out, another North Carolina poet, one may not make a wish on seeing it. It is a raucous bird like the crow and belligerent. And I think that just comes back to a lot of the things we've been talking about, about place in North Carolina and um, the way your writing kind of grows out of where you are and your attention to the local and specific and um, is I really love thinking too about um, lore you know specific lore and it's actually very hard to learn about lore um, other than from people right like, right it's and hard you read to somebody like Dr. Trudia Harris, who uh, is a folklorist and a well-known African-American literary scholar, you know, that too could help you along the way. Uh, but, you know, you have to live that, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even the way I think about how, um, you know, bottle trees are used as decoration in, in Durham and North Carolina and um, I just think, you know, you see, you, you see kind of that like artificial decoration and it's got such deeper roots, right. Or the, the kind of lore of birds. I was thinking about reading your book and I was thinking about like, how do you even begin to understand the lore of birds? Um, and knowing like when, when Tyree Day writes about the Cardinal, Tyree Day is thinking about death and family. And I mean, it's so, it's so weighted. There's so much more than just a beautiful red bird out your window. Tyree Day is a really good poet and he writes really good blues poems. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think about his blues poems because, you know, uh, 
he, he's a really good craftsman and mm -hmm. uh, he's able to infuse the blues into his work. So, mm -hmm. so certainly, yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. And he's that. a North Carolina poet too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I think he would just love to hear that. Um, I was at uh, the Frost Poetry Conference with Tyree. He was like my faculty. He was like, I was in his workshop. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when he would sit apart working at a, a picnic table and he'd be working on his writing, he'd have his big headphones on and he would be listening and he would really bring music into the workshop. He would bring Nina Simone into the workshop. He would bring who he was listening to. Um, yeah, that's the type of type of thing I've done in my classes, uh, mm -hmm. you know, have that music plan when the students come in and mm -hmm. then have them writing about the music. Yes. Oh, oh, I love it. Yes. I was wondering if you would like to read your poem Nina Simone speaks to a connoisseur from the geography of jazz. Okay. Let me find the page in here. So I, I like to begin readings that I do with another Southern writers poem. Uh -huh. And I did a reading this week and I read this poem by you. And since I have now read it in my voice, I would really like to hear it. In oh, voice. wow. <laughs> I'm honored. Thank you. Nina Simone speaks to a connoisseur. I sing my own cuts. I've worked with Don Pullen. Ben Riley drummed for me. I never wanted to be labeled. I confuse your ear with difference. I wanted my vocals to be signature. I wanted to do Tryon proud. So right. Don't let me be misunderstood. Took me to a spiritual plane. Oh, I love that piano. I know some folk called me feisty, but I wanted to extend my range, explore something as vast as blue sky. I probably should have sang, don't let me be misunderstood, <laughs> but oh well. Can't do it like Nina Simone, so I want that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you You're thank welcome. you um yeah i mean just it, the way this poem functions as like an artistic you know an artist statement um it's all i mean i'm not sure i want to use the word manifesto but it has that um power of declaration and statement um and it it comes later in your book so it's after you've really established your own presence, but I think it, it kind of folds in around your own. And it's interesting because you don't always, you, this is not like your go-to, um, it's not like you work with declarative statements throughout your, you know, like it's, it's doing something right. different. And, you know, even though this is a collection of jazz poem, I was hoping that poem as well as Accension, John Coltrane mm -hmm. uh, worked almost like a persona poem. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was hoping. But, you know, whatever the reader gets from it, I'm grateful. Yeah. And bringing your people, bringing the people that you want to influence your work and be a presence in your work. There's something very powerful and kind of incantatory, you know, when you invoke someone's name in your work. And I think it's whether, you know, I, I think response poems are such a good way to get students 
writing and it, whether it's something that makes them mad or whether it's someone that they really love and they want to bring into their work. Like it's powerful when you bring someone else's name into your work. And I hope by incorporating the different titles that people will put those songs on maybe while they are reading the poems. Mm. Uh, so hopefully we'll see what happens. I, I want it to be an experience. Mm. That's what I hope. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Um, I was thinking that when I was um, reading your book, I was like, I need to put some music on because <laughs> I usually read in silence. And when I can find silence, I'm like, yay, I can read. <laughs> um, oh, I had a question about, so um, because, I mean, you write a lot of um, forms from the Japanese, um, the haiku and the tanka and the haibun and, um, you know, the natural world is so much a, a touchstone, like a major touchstone. I'm, touchstone is probably not even a big enough word for what it is. Um, but I didn't want to use the word inspiration either. Um, mm-hmm. But but that the presence is so powerful in those forms. And I recently spoke with Amanda Moore on episode 20 of this podcast, and I, I wanted to live vicariously through Amanda. So I asked her to talk about the California light, like what that was like. And I was wondering how you would characterize the light, the North Carolina light around you. Um, Cause I, I really do think, you know, I live under these loblolly pines and they get into my poems all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope that uh, Forever Home, one of my earlier books, will do that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I write a lot about North Carolina and there, in fact, about where I'm from and about the farm work I've done and about family and all of that. Uh, it's, it's very heavily influenced by the natural world, in fact, incorporates the natural world in it. Uh, so... I hope people will see from through reading my poetry rather than me trying to explain what that light might be mm. for me. I hope they could see that light within my work. Mm. Yeah, I hear that. Um, I was wondering if you would be interested in reading Raleigh Jazz Festival 1986. Okay. which I think is also getting after something about the North Carolina light. (laughs) Raleigh Jazz Festival, 1986. On the Fayetteville Street Mall, a lean man bobs his head. His sack shines, polished copper and a sunbeam. Rhythm, a splendid rising echoing against concrete. The trumpeter inches across the homemade platform. His angled jaw swerves and slacks. His notes, perfect geometry for dancing. People snap their fingers. They are baseline vibrating autumn. Pigeons peck peanuts, a drum beaks on the sidewalk. The musicians blast into sky. Red leaves ripple, ripple red leaves loose 
from a stand of trees glow in the sunset, play vamps as earthlings will do. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. The Vibrating Autumn. It's a beautiful poem. Do, okay, so I have a selfish question, which I just am curious and want to know. But when you are writing about music and you're thinking about music so intrinsically in the language, is this something that you do after you've been listening to music or is it something you do during or is it just a mixture? It's a mixture, but for me, I have to feel the music to write the music. So it's also about feel as a jazz musician would tell you. As you know, I often perform with jazz musicians or jazz band. And that's one of the things they ask you when they see the poetry. What's the feel of it? What's the feel? So I also believe in incorporating, as you know, the five senses, especially the auditory sensory. Mm -hmm. Uh, perception so and that's tough so I worked on this collection probably at least 30 years uh, uh, but now I probably because of a time element getting older I may only work for maybe five years or less on a volume but I spent a lot of time on on this collection and it and I hope it shows in the poems and and then how the poems hopefully are in conversation uh, with one another to hopefully create a performance, if you will. Uh, so we see what happens. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, I was wondering if, um, so you, your two most recent collections that we've been talking about, the geography of jazz from 2018, I believe, and long rain from 2021, um, they're both love letters in many ways to North Carolina. Um, they're both, um, there's such a, a loving attention that I was thinking about in both of them. And, you know, I, I read with you recently with the Poetry Society in North Carolina, and we heard some of your poems and they were really powerful. Um, and um, I think there was a next to these two books, right. Uh, they were very, um, they had like a very political voice to them. And I, you know, even as I say political, I kind of roll my eyes inside my head because of course we, we know like how, how that word is used. Right. Um, but I was wondering where you find yourself now in your poetry and what feelings are you writing towards? I think, uh, the, the, as long as I've been writing now, once you know what you're doing, I think it gets even harder to write because you, at least for me, I'm kind of hard on myself or, or tough uh, with uh, being a critic of my own work. So I don't let my work go as easily as I did when I was younger. I would type it up and ready to send it out. But now I revise and revise, hoping to get it right. And, you know, one must read his or her work aloud to listen to the music mm -hmm. and, and so I keep working on it trying to incorporate as much as possible into it uh you know whether it's alliteration assonance consonants euphony uh, rhyme or or anaphora or whatever uh, mm -hmm. I keep working on it uh, mm -hmm. 
and hopefully I can create a multiplicity of meaning in the work. I, I don't know. That's up to the reader because I'm hoping that the reader can participate in the experience of the poem and whatever he or she brings to the poem uh, to complete the experience. Yes. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I think it's um, I think it's really good to hear because um, I'm having a year where I kind of and am less interested in submitting individual poems to places and kind of participating in that rush to submit. And I just find that I want to sit back and I really want to spend time with I'm I'm prioritizing the writing time, not the submitting time. I mean, I know there's times when exactly. you need to do that. Exactly. I do send out my haiku and tanka, but my longer poems, I hold it longer. I work on it and work on it. In fact, in 2020, I wrote so many blues poems. So now I have a number of blues poems coming out. Oh, that's exciting. So, so, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, mm. So, say, I, I just love music. So, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully at one point I, I put a number of those poems together. In fact, in the 80s, I started working on a blues collection mm -hmm. and a number of them were published in magazines. But now I'm glad that I held that, too. Maybe I get back to it because hopefully I know a, a bit more about it. Uh, so what I'm getting at is you don't want to publish too early. Mm. So, you know, you have to sit on the work a while, you know, uh, mm -hmm. let it simmer, get back to it, uh, bring some more to it and and then see what happens. Yeah, it's it's really hard because there is such a balance of um, you need like a little external validation. But I think we think we need a lot more like, oh, right. we need all the external validation. But the fact is, like that real validation comes from you. And but there's so much you're working on in that, especially blues poems. Uh, what's the narrative? What's the story? Uh, you know, it's so much. And there's a form. I mean, there's so many things to do. So you can't just jot it down and send it out. We have to hopefully get it right. Mm. Yes. Yes. Um, and since you've brought up, you know, um, your tanka, and, um, and I, I really, I want to encourage listeners who, who love haiku and tanga and haibun to get their hands on long rain, which is first of all, just a beautiful book. Um, physically it's gorgeous to hold. And, um, I think that that you'll be so, um, so absolutely swept away by these poems. And, um, I'm, I'm really impressed by just the the shape and the form of the tanka, which I have never worked with, but I'm like, oh, this is the perfect length poem. Like this is, <laughs> this is it. Um, and would you like to talk a little bit about the, the different experiences in writing haiku versus tanka and, and the haibun too? Well, well, I've been writing both of them a long time, you know, uh, 40 years for haiku and this year, 40 years for tanka. Mm. And, and certainly, uh, Tonka, you have more room uh, to work with uh, the lyric or, or, or trying to uh, infuse music and also uh, love and, or relationships. But also the Tonka can incorporate the natural world, too. But you think about love when you think of Tonka. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I've been working with that for a long time. In fact, I held the manuscript for decades. Uh, 
but you know, uh, finally, uh, this uh, new publisher I have, Wet Cement Press, uh, they accepted it and they brought it out and they've done an excellent job. I'm, oh. I'm pleased with the book. Uh, I'm pleased with this book as well as uh, the mm. geography of jazz. Uh, mm. You know, both publishers, Blair did a great job. Mm. Uh, I'm thrilled because I think uh, the how a book looks and, and the cover is, is important. I think it will draw readers Mm-hmm. Uh, if the cover isn't appealing, uh, will anybody pick it up? I don't know, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with the covers mm-hmm. of both books. And hopefully uh, what's inside the books uh, are, are, you know, good enough to hold the reader's attention. Yeah, I think that's, um, it's so important when I've, I've been talking with people about where they want to submit their books and, um I talked to them about like, well, make sure you like the press's books before you like, and like, you need to, you need to connect with, um, the, the physical shape of the book, the physical way they're laid out. Like what, what is the attention to the cover? What is the, you know, the fonts, like you Absolutely. can, all these things matter, um, and maybe that helps the reviewers to select the book that they want to review. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But yeah. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah, because there, there are so many ways a reader will connect with a book, right? And the outside mm-hmm. is part of it. Um, that's so interesting that you bring up love with the Tonka. I, I know, I think I know very little about Tonkas. Um, can you say more about that? Well, well, Tonka, like haiku, has two parts to it, too, you know. And uh, I would say that, uh, well, for me, I tried to incorporate uh, particular uh, words, specificity, and uh, hopefully strong verbs and and nouns. Uh, not a lot of abstract words, and mm. uh, so so it's you have to work at it, and uh, that's what I've done. I worked on those poems for so many years, or should I say, decades. Uh, and uh, all I can say, let's see what happens because I don't know. I hope I've gotten them right. That's all I can do is hope uh, for each collection that comes out. I just try to work and work, revise, revise, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. you know, let the poem speak. Yes, um, I was when I was talking with Amanda Moore, who who writes, who has a lot of high boon in her book, um, Requeening, um, one of the things she brought up about the form was the tension between the, uh-huh. the prose uh-huh. section with, uh-huh. and the, um, and the tanko or the, or the haiku attached. And, um, I had really never thought about the tension. I, I thought of it more as like a break or a shift or something happens. Um, but it's not a form I've written in myself, even though I, I have my classes work on it because I'm very interested in hybrid forms and moving between, you know, different, it's just a shift for the reader, mm-hmm. right? Um, but well, I think- you, when you think of Renku or Renga, you really work on shifting and linking and all of that in the, uh, the collaborative poem. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole, there's also an entire... Um, Black American tradition with haiku and with these, I was actually. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You go back to Louis Alexander doing the Harlem Renaissance mm. and then you come on up to Richard Wright mm. 
Mm-hmm. And then Sonia Sanchez, mm-hmm. Etheridge Knight, you know, there mm-hmm. are a number of people out there writing haiku yeah. really good. Kalamu Yasalam, uh, Francis Alexander. Mm. Uh, you know, there are people who are writing. And then uh, now we have uh, Dr. L. Teresa Church, uh, Krista Simone Smith, Dr. Mm-hmm. Sheila Smith McCoy, Gideon Young. There are so many so. African American poets who are, who are writing haiku. Mm-hmm. Tara Betts, mm-hmm. uh, uh, McDonald. He's out of New York City, I think. His mm-hmm. name is Tyrone McDonald. Uh, there are some poets out there who African American poets who are writing really good uh, haiku. I just named some of them. Yes, a number of them, several of them. Thank you for doing that. I'll make sure I, I put their names into the show notes too, so folks can follow up. Um, I think of the poet Michael Frazier too. I'm not sure if you've run across his work, but um, he was in Japan for a while and um, he's, you know, a a young black poet. And uh, again, tapping into the same, I think finding like where, who you want to see as like the line of poets you're writing in is so important. And um, that, you know, realizing that there's always these competing narratives and there's the narrative that you're an individual, you do everything on your own. And then like, no, you're always part of a living tradition and traditions aren't dead. They're alive. Um, and it's, so seeing that I think is really, and that's goes back to your advice for younger poets, which is reading, right. And reading mm-hmm. the work you want to be like, that's how well, you find your people. There's a African-American haiku poet in Texas named Michael Moore. There's another uh, African-American poet in Chicago area, Mm -hmm. Regina, who is the founder of uh, Haiku Festival. And uh, she's also a renowned composer. So Mm -hmm. you can look her up. Uh, So there are a number of Mm African-American haiku poets out there now who are doing great things with the form. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that more listeners will, um, kind of do this, do this reading and look into it because I think there's a huge, I think there's a lot of, um, excitement around, um, some of these forms now. And, um, I mean, I think that I think about, um, Robert Haas's book of haiku that has Mm -hmm. also done a lot to the translations to kind of bring, Mm -hmm to keep the haiku as a form in kind of public reader consciousness. Right. I Um, think his anthology or book is titled Essential Haiku. Yes. Thank you for that. I definitely forgotten. (laughs) And so the Carolina African-American Writers Collective has an anthology of haiku. One uh, One Windows Light, a collection of haiku, too. And, and so there are five uh, haiku poets in, in that particular book. So hopefully people will look at that. Yes. Uh, but Van den Hoover's, uh the haiku anthology from Norton. Mm, thank uh, the you. third yeah. edition, you would want to look at that. Jim Cation's haiku in English uh, anthology from mm, Norton. Mm-hmm. You would want to look at that. Uh, Bruce Ross also had Haiku Moment uh, from Mm. Tuttle. Uh, So, yeah, Dr. Bruce Ross. So you look at those Haiku anthologies. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Because I think that it's, um, I've recently really gotten into Sashiko, which is Mm -hmm. a, um, a Japanese form of embroidery. And it is, it's so wonderful to do something 
non-Western and to like mm-hmm. um, just do something. <laughs> it, it's totally different. It thinks differently than how right. I learned to sew growing up. Um, and so I just love that. But, you know, to think about um, these, you know, Asian forms of poetry living and breathing in North Carolina in black Southern writers, like that it can fold in so many different traditions and um, be this like many layered thing. That's also very non-Western that's like, but it's also make remaking itself. I think it's so exciting um, to do that and to find different lines. Like you don't have to, you know, I know there's like, a, I know there's a huge, um, support group for the sonnet. I mean, the sonnet's got, you know, it's like, I like football fans, the sonnet's like, they're terrifying. I, I get worried when I get into an, get near an argument about the sonnet that people are going to start swinging sometimes because people are really invested in it. Um, right. right. So and, and then there's a uh, William J. Higginson mm. or Bill Higginson who has several books on haiku as the haiku handbook uh, haiku world haiku seasons look up some of his work Mm. and one of the book is is with his uh wife penny harter h-a-r-t-e-r who is a fine haiku poet Mm. Uh, so look up uh those works yes thank you we'll i'm hoping, hoping people will um, would you like to? Um... Oh, I must say something about Morning Haiku, Sonia yes. Sanchez's book, and also uh, Richard Wright's book, This yes, Other please. World. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, those two books, too. Mm-hmm. You want to look those up. Thank you. Um, Sonia Sanchez just had a new collected book come out, it was in hardcover last year. And I think it's this spring, it comes out in paperback for everyone kind of counting their dollar bills in their wallets um, <laughs> or who she like to hold soft. A, a must read poet. Yes. Uh, she does not only write haiku, she's right. She writes Tonka too, and has been writing both forms for decades. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And, and, and so you, you want to study her study, study Richard, right? You, you mm. must, how can mm-hmm. you not? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to read us some of your tanka from Long Rain? Okay. Washing pink sheets. She bends over the wash tub this sun splash morning. And how warm wind scatters the scent of her perfume. So it incorporates a number of the sensory perceptions there. But I don't really want to talk about my own poem. Um, I'll let you do that. <laughs> that's one of my fav- that's one of my favorites in the book. Thank you. Let's see. Uh, Evening chill, a white-haired woman drinking sassafras tea. The nurse straightens a lithograph on the pink wall. The sand flies shadowless across the yard as day cools off and leaves a course of crickets like memory linking me here. 
At the river's edge, only my father hears the owl that's whitening as morning wind stares the limbs of the longleaf pine and snow. Idle sun, a black ant goes back across the leaflet. The sound of a chainsaw breaks through the woodlot. A black man bending over the low cotton bush, sunfire on his back, the flap of a burlap sack while blues hide in my throat. Alone in the park, suddenly leaf after leaf falling on the lovers near gray granite stone this starry night. And maybe one more because I want to uh, just give the reader an appetizer and then hopefully they'll purchase the buffet. Yes. Late winter, the widow works the dough for bread and the heat rises from the oven. Thank you. Those are Thank beautiful. you. Hmm. So in closing, um, I was wondering if, because I don't, like I said, it's it's kind of a rare opportunity that I get to sit with someone who grew up in North Carolina and who has such a history here. Um, how has North Carolina and or North Carolina's poetry changed during your lifetime? Oh, wow. I've seen that. Well, one thing is with form, you know, I early on, I saw a lot of traditional poetry. Mm-hmm. And, but now, uh, you know, it's more free verse, but some people do write in traditional forms. And also now there are so many haiku poets in North Carolina. There were not as many uh, when I started writing uh, haiku. And I probably only knew less than a handful of people writing Tonka in North Carolina. So, and then I didn't know any people who were writing guzzles in this state, but now there are people writing that. I write them too, and uh, and I'm sure there have always been people writing villanelles. I write that. Uh, a number of different poetic forms that I work in. But I think uh, there are more poetry collections coming out. It seems like there has been a renaissance of, of North Carolina literature uh, the past couple decades or so. So I think that's one good thing. And there are more arts organizations and uh, organizations and institutions that support writers. So, so there's really a community of writers in North Carolina who are so friendly to one another. That's one thing that I see that uh, uh, it was kind of starting that way when I started, but not really like it is now hmm. uh, uh who worked a lot on your own back then but uh now i i see that happening so much 
And, you know, uh, I started Carolina African-American Writers Collective because, you know, there were times in workshops when you had to explain certain cultural references and, you know, that takes time from the critique of your poetry. So, so, so more things are happening. No, I just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's for the good of, of literature uh, and the state of North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina is certainly prominent in my work. And uh, so you can tell I love my state. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad to be here and, and and hopefully we all are reaching back to, to help the younger generation. I think that's what it's about, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I find that North Carolina really helps its writers, uh, its artists in general. Yeah. So that's what I see now. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good to hear. Um, I think Jackie Shelton Green is done some amazing work too and just having knowing that you know there there's a whole you know generations of of poets um supporting each other and creating spaces for younger writers and um you know teaching in our schools and going into our schools and jackie shelton green has been out there for decades Mm -hmm. doing the work and uh building community and uh supporting diversity and 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 just doing the great work and and writing great poetry so she's been out there for a long time so it's great to see her as North Carolina's Port Laureate uh, long overdue yeah absolutely Mr. Moore thank you so much for being here today is there anything you would like to to read or say in closing okay I'll close with a poem from the geography of jazz Wonderful. Thank you. I think I want to close with Sunday evening. This is a poem I wrote while listening to just instrumental music. Uh, you know, uh, Ramsey Lewis was playing at Enloe High School back in 1989. So I was sitting there in the auditorium as he was playing, just, just writing, trying to create something. And, and here's what I have. Sunday evening for Ramsey Lewis. As lights grow glow red in the distant background, he sits at the great black grand. Fingers flutter across the keys. Two black men pluck their guitars, tight gold strings, and the percussionist tings the cymbals, their heads bob, the audience claps. Band members pat their shiny black shoes. The silver gold instruments gleam brighter than the spotlight beaming down on the glossy stage. The piano's chords in tune, in tone better than, oh yes, than any heart's thumps. Genius's eyeglasses follow his fingers every moment. Ah, the harmony, now genius tall and lean, stands, bows, then thumps onto the seat and thumps the piano man his pants the color of the piano sway as if the wind beats them no one in the audience sits without bobbing their heads as the music progresses while the band's shadow heads rock on the curtains turn purple then red everyone walks off the stage except the drummer who does his thing drumming until the others come back back playing again that harmony peels the walls bare oh i love it love it 
Can't you hear it too, my friends? They jamming every now and then. The audience erupts. The tilted man makes that bass talk, that talk. My feet tap against the tile floor. Everybody's fingers pop, snap, pop, popping until the chill night. Listen, let these words throb, throb, throb in your head until you let go of your rocking, clapping self. Ah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. I, I just recently read Toni Morrison's novel Home. And there's that scene where the character like leans in and goes into the bar and there's jazz playing and this drummer is like caught up. Like it talks about like caught up in like the spirit of the music. And they, they end up realizing like all the other musicians realize what's happening and all the music stopped and the drummer is still playing. And I think they lift him up and they have to like carry him away. Um, and I think that's how that's like my experience of reading the geography of jazz. Like you, you feel like you need to be carried away. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the drummer because mm. as you know, I have a poem in here titled Max Roach speaks to an autophile. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, he was one of the greatest drummers and Max Roach too was from North Carolina. In fact, a number of the poems in here are like tributes to North Carolina mm -hmm. jazz artists, Nina Simone, mm -hmm. Nina Freelon, mm -hmm. John Coltrane. You know, you go on and on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, North Carolina is heavily influences this book yeah. here. Yeah. Thank you so much for reading from it and sharing from it today and for spending this time with me. Um, and Listeners, if you would like to find out more about Leonard D. Moore's work, that you will find um, links and uh, more information in our show notes. So just please go there and click away and get your copies of Long Rain and the Geography of Jazz. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you.